This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Tuesday, October 20th, 2020 edition of Invest Talk, and we are exactly two weeks away from Election Day. And looking back over the past year, it's been a wild ride for investors, and there's probably a lot of uncertainty out there, right? Do we power through? this kind of consolidation period near the highs that we've been gyrating around over the past couple of months? Or do we have a setback post-election due to either the market not liking the outcome or maybe a uh, an uncertain outcome, right, that's maybe tied up in the courts? That's certainly a possibility as well. And therefore, you need strategies to deal with the current market environment, right? In a time where you're starting to get a rotation out of the growth side of the market into the value side of the market, interest rates are rising, the dollar is on a downtrend, and it's hard to know exactly what government policy will be going forward as well without knowing the election outcome. So you need to be prepared for this continuing volatility and that's what we are to help here to help you do is to find those opportunities and to understand both the opportunities and the risks in the market. Now I'm Justin Klein and today's program and, and podcast, I'm gonna do my best to provide unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. I know you want strategies to help deal with the volatility as it's out there. So I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. Now let's check in on the market real quick. It was a very modest update. The S&P was up about 16 points. What's that, about half a percent or so, a little less. And that was after a pretty decent down day yesterday, and we actually closed near the lows of the day. So it was a relatively weak close. Same with the NASDAQ. That was only up about 37 points. Same thing, about 0.3% or, or so on the upside. But most of the day, early in the morning, the NASDAQ was up over 100. 100. So it's it, it closed weak as well. So we are also starting to enter earning season and out of the 500 S&P 500 companies 66 have reported now 86% of top expectations which is higher than average at this point in the earnings season but still young right we still that's 66 out of 500 you're talking 13% or so that have reported so a lot more to come. We had some good news out of Travelers. That was up about 5.6% today. Netflix was down after hours, down about 6% after reporting subscriber growth that was weaker than expected for a couple of reasons. Rising competition, right? There's so many streaming options nowadays. Netflix is no longer the only game in town. And on top of that, live sports has returned. So more things to watch, more more things to 
put your attention to uh, in today's media landscape versus, you know, three, six months ago when there really was no sports at all. Now, IBM had earnings after the bell yesterday, and that fell pretty hard. Had the lowest revenue in, I think, since 2013, I think was the, the year. So certainly a rough time in the tech bell weathers, right, the old tech names, and even the new tech names, right, with Netflix. So, uh, so far, kind of a mixed bag overall with earnings and a lot more to come. Like I said, only 13% of the 500 S&P 500 companies have reported so far. Now, my main focus point today is in regards to the housing market. And yesterday was the National Association of Home Builders Monthly Confidence Index report. And it reached a new all-time high. So I'm going to dig into that, what that ultimately means for the housing market and thus the economy. Because we know that the housing market is an important aspect to the economy and where we move going forward. So I'm going to touch on that. Next, eviction moratoriums are coming and they're going and there's a lot being uh, passed state to state as well as on a national level coming out of the White House. And so how that will impact renters, landlords, and the economy going forward, not just in the short term, but also medium term as well, because guess what? Remember, these eviction moratoriums are just that. They are moratoriums, meaning a lot of these renters who may not be paying rent right now still owe the rent. So what kind of longer term impact is that going to have on the economy as well? In addition, I want to get to preferred shares. Preferred shares. This is an area of more interest to income investors over the years, especially as rates have fallen and people are searching for better yields. And with better yields comes higher risk as well. So we're going to touch on what the risks are and the potential opportunities in the preferred stock space and whether it makes sense for you. So we're going to look at that. And then most importantly, whatever is on your mind, frankly, uh, we have some other topics, New York City commercial real estate, but honestly, there's a lot to discuss in today's market. So I want to hear from you. We have a very information-packed podcast for you today. So let's get right to our first caller at 888-99-CHART. Hi, I had a question about Quidel, ticker symbol QDEL. I bought some of this when it hit a low point beginning of September, and I've, I've wrote it up about 50%. I do like the company, and they are a brand that I use every day in the healthcare field. It's just trended down over the last week or so, and I was planning to load up some more shares when it started turning around. Do you have any different thoughts or opinions on Quidel, guys? Thank you. All right, this is Quidel, and this is on my watch list, but it is pretty expensive at these levels. Now, they develop rapid diagnostic tests for infectious diseases, women's health, and gastrointestinal diseases. The issue here is that, yes, their business is booming because of COVID. But guess what? COVID's not going to be around forever. So while they're expected to make $15 a share this year, $26 a share next year, how long is that really going to last? We're not going to be rapid testing for COVID for the next 15, 20 years, right? That's going to come back down to earth. Last year, they made $3 a share, $2.97 a share. 
the year before that, $3.06 a share. So yes, their business has been growing before COVID, but they're not going to make this amount of money, right? So you have to adjust longer term. You're probably expecting somewhere back in the neighbor of $3. Even call it $4 a share. You're trading at a 60 plus PE ratio. I think that's pretty rich at these levels. Not only that, but technically you had a big rollover in the month of August with a lot of the market and a lot of the tech shares. And this is happening once again. So technically, I'm not a fan of it. It is looking like it looking very toppy. And while I like the company, I think these valuations are extremely high. And I don't believe that their earnings are going to be sustained past the next you know year, 18 months. So I would be taking my gains most, if not all, off the table. You're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein, and Halloween is in the air. And now. I think most people realize that the end of the year will be here in just over two months. For ne- but for now, investors need to be vigilant in understanding the risks that they have in their portfolio and in the market. So uncertainty makes investors anxious, shall we say. And in order to avoid that anxiousness, that emotion, the fear and the greed, you need to be able to balance your portfolio and do it with effective strategies. So that's my job each and every day is to help you develop it. And your participation is an important part of helping me help you. So we're taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. It's an Invest Talk Tuesday. Justin Blind is here today taking your calls live. How's your portfolio doing? Are you prepared for continuing market volatility? You've got questions, so call Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hey Steve, this is uh, John calling from Chicago. I had a question I was hoping you could answer. It's a pretty simple one. Basically, it has to do with taxes. I want to know if I have to pay taxes or how the taxes work if I sell an individual stock and uh, immediately sell a stock for a short gain and then immediately buy or purchase another stock a following. Do I pay taxes since I just reinvested the money? I look forward to hearing the answer. Thanks, Steve. Yes, you do. You absolutely pay taxes if you made a gain on it. If you held it less than a year, a year or less, you're going to pay ordinary income tax on that, that gain. If you hold it, held it longer than a year, then you're going to pay your long-term capital gains rate, which varies depending on uh, your income level, what state you live in, etc. So absolutely, it doesn't matter whether you reinvest it or not, you've taken gains on your investment. Thanks for the call. 888-99-CHART, 992-4278. I encourage everyone to get their call in sooner rather than later. Now my focus point today highlights the housing markets and the recent report yesterday, in fact, on the National Association of Home Builders Monthly Confidence Index. And it rose a couple points to 85 in October, which is a record high. In fact, third month in a row in which it hit a record high. And only the second time that the confidence measure was above 80. Above 50 means everything's positive. 80 is very, very positive when it comes to the housing market. Now, it was a little mixed this month. 
Northeast and the West increased seven points each. And in the Midwest and the South, they actually fell. Midwest fell one point to 77. South fell two points to 83. So extreme, extreme bullishness overall, but kind of a mixed bag for at least the month. Now, a few things are driving this. We know COVID and people working remotely and wanting to have a bigger home, especially if they're spending more and more time in their home, working from home. They're going to want more space. They're going to want an office. They want a, a bigger backyard, a little bit more amenities. Right? You're spending so much time there, whereas before, maybe you're spending the vast majority of your time in the office. So that's certainly a big factor. Second, mortgage rates hit a record low of 2.81% recently. And this is good for the economy as a whole. We know that. History has shown that the more people purchase homes, the more they fill it with consumer goods, furniture, appliances, decorations, etc. Right? And they employ movers and they employ people to maybe make a few renovations to their home if they don't love everything about it, right? They might want to redo the kitchen or the bathroom or put new floors in or paint the walls or whatever. And that employs more people as well. So home sales drive consumption, consumer spending. It's history says that it's very well established. Okay. So this is overall the, the brightest spot in the economy. And you really need to uh, understand that the eviction moratorium and the lack of inventory that's out there, which I'm going to get to probably after the next break, talking about the eviction moratorium, that is driving this as well, low inventory. And until there's more power in the hands of the landlords versus the tenants and the homeowners, then you're likely to see the supply of homes in the market remain relatively low. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And in these uncertain times, it's natural for investors to be unsure about their portfolio, their strategy, and the risk in their portfolio. So if you want to head over to our website, check out our free risk questionnaire. It'll help you a lot. We're taking your calls live at 888-99-CHART. What a difference a year makes. You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein is here now taking your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, thank you guys for the show. I love it. I want to talk about Thor Industries, symbol T-H-O. I bought in at $98.50 a share, really expecting their earnings report in the third quarter to, to boost their stock price, expecting with all the purchases of RVs and similar homes like that to lead to some big earnings, but it didn't. And I'm basically broken even. It sounds like that because they were one of the slower RV manufacturing companies to return to production that they might have lost a little bit of their market share. I'm wondering if you think that I should just cut bait and take it as, hey, basically no gain, no loss, or if it's a good long-term play to hold on to and see if this increase in RV purchasing continues. Thanks a lot. 
are looking at Thor Industries. T-H-O is the symbol. And this is a little bit of a mixed bag. Now, the first thing I like to look at for a company like this that's very cyclical in a lot of ways that should be growing its earnings over an expansionary economic cycle, I want to see how consistent that earnings growth is. And for Thor, from about 2014 to 2018, they were doing well. Moved from $3.29 all the way up to $8.55, $8.55 over that time. But then they had a setback over the couple of years, even before COVID. So last year, $6.48 a share. In fiscal year 2020, $4.75 a share. Now they're expected next year to make $6.67. A little bit of bounce back. But their recent earnings report, revenue is only up 1%. And you're right, this is a time where RV sales, and that's what they do. They make Airstream and other the top brands uh, in the space. This is a time when right people can get out. If you wanted to get away from big cities and other people, but buy an RV, right? Go travel the country, go go to campsites, and and kind of get other people, especially if you're you know worried about COVID. And so it's kind of a boom time for a lot of these names. And there's some competitors uh, that have done well, and they haven't done nearly as well. Like Winnebago, for example, that's done much, much better. And so he's talking about the, the fact that the this was a company that had trouble maybe producing quite as much. I think that's one of the issues here. So you know, I don't love it. It's kind of a mixed bag. You look at profitability long term. It was doing very well. Return on equity kind of in the mid to high teens from 2011 all the way to 2018. In 2019, down to 6%. 2020, down to 10%. So, you know, I just don't love it here uh, just because of that mixed bag. I think there's much better opportunities in the marketplace for this name, even though long-term baby boomers retiring and there's some definite tailwinds to their business, I just don't love that inconsistency and it's a very competitive landscape. So I'm gonna pass on Thor Industries. T-H-O is the symbol. Thanks for the call. Now, in connection to our focus point today, I wanna touch on eviction moratoriums. Now on September 1st, US health officials announced they would suspend evictions across the U.S. to help stem the potential tidal wave of evictions that are coming. Now, the local and state and federal eviction bans that gave temporary protection back in the spring started to lapse in early summer, about uh, June, July, and started to pick up steam state by state. But in September, the CDC protected many, but not all renters that will expire in January. So it protected those that expired in September, but this only gives them reprieve until January. So another little over two months. Now in January, unless things change, $32 billion in back rent will come due on up to 8 million tenants facing eviction. Now, typically, you're only about 3.6 million people face eviction. So you're talking about over double the amount of people facing eviction in a, a, a typical year, just in that one month. Now, 
this is a double whammy, not just for the renters, but for the landlords as well. Many of the landlords, they have mortgages to pay, right? And many have not received rent for six, eight months. And being a landlord isn't a high profit business. Typically, your return on investment is only about 9% annually, which is fairly good, but doesn't give you a lot of cushion. Now, the recent relief bill, uh, the House passed one, the Democrat-controlled House. They included $50 billion in emergency renter and homeowner assistance funds and a ban on evictions for the next 12 months. The Senate proposal doesn't have those, those, those provisions. Now, the Trump administration also announced on October 9th, so 11 days ago, their policy guidance that property owners are free to start the eviction process while the federal moratorium is active. And it also stipulates that landlords are not mandated to make tenants aware that the eviction ban exists. So they can continue with these this eviction moratorium. So, uh, And the CDC order also leaves a little bit up to interpretation. So it what it's telling you is that a lot of the stimulus package and the government's mandated relief that was given over the spring and summer starting to lapse and will continue to lapse through the beginning of the year unless things change. And this is going to be a drag on the economy unless something changes. So, uh, you know, employ landlords can garnish wages and they can do a lot. And that, those back rents also carry a 12% interest charge as well. So big, big thing to follow. I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At the start of each new day, we are presented with opportunities, the chance to learn better ways of doing things, the prospect for establishing stronger business connections. But as you go about your daily routine, there's one task, one challenge you should not put off, the need to plan for and work toward achieving financial freedom, that point in the future when your money, your assets are working for you while you work only if you want to. Getting from here to there to your idea of financial freedom is possible. However, serious investors eventually recognize that unless they can afford to devote the time and efforts required to thoroughly understand market dynamics, to properly balance, optimize, and maintain their portfolios, Expert guidance will be essential. The moment that spark of reality hits, you will want to consult with Steve Peasley and Justin Klein of KPP Financial in Irvine, California. KPP Financial consultations are unbiased, offered without cost or obligation, and designed to help guide individuals toward their ultimate financial objectives. The next highly beneficial step for your investing future can start when you reach out to Steve or Justin via Skype, a phone call, or a quick message through investtalk.com. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart. 
Now on the next Invest Talk, the story behind this headline. The antitrust battle begins. Google has been officially charged with monopoly power by the Justice Department. After a 16-month investigation, the government says Google is violating the Sherman Antitrust Act through its search and search advertising business. And that story is tomorrow that I will get to. But let's go straight back to the Invest Talk Voice Bank for a question from a listener in Texas. Hey, Steve and Justin. This is Adam again from Texas. Thanks for taking my call. I had a question about reverse mortgages. Yesterday, my wife was telling me that reverse mortgages are a good deal for somebody who's over 62 and has a mortgage that's paid off, but they don't necessarily have a retirement plan in place. I was just wondering what your guys' take is on it. Thanks for the time. Love the show. Great question. I know a lot of investors out there or uh, homeowners out there have thought about this throughout the years. Uh, They're fairly recent products. I think they launched maybe 15, 20 years ago. And on the face of it, reverse mortgages are are not that bad, right? You, You have equity. You don't care to pass along your property maybe to the next of kin. doesn't matter too much to you, but you want to tap into that equity that you have, but without selling your home. And that's certainly something that could be could be done and you don't want to make payments as well right and a reverse mortgage allows you to do that you get a big lump sum unlike a HELOC where you're gonna to have to make some sort of payments or some sort of re- cash out refinancing we're gonna to have to make some sort of payments you know that the balance just accrues and the interest just accrues and this can be a an option for people but it should not be your first option for retirement funds. A, they're very high fees. The interest rates uh, tend to be above average. And there are some stipulations around what happens if you go to the hospital or you're in a nursing home for a little while, right? Maybe you have an accident and you don't live in the home for X period of time. The bank can actually force you to sell the home before you actually pass away. So there's some rules around living in the home or not living in the home that can cause problems, okay? So make sure you understand those rules. Now, can it be a a decent fourth, fifth, sixth option once you get through your retirement funds, right? exhaust all other types of assets sure should you tap it in a last resort instead of maybe moving into a home that you don't really want to right selling your home and having to downsize when you don't really want to it can be an option but it should never be your first option you should never plan on it it would just be a contingency in case things go a little wonky right worse than you had expected so Definitely don't bank on a reverse mortgage as a retirement plan. It should not be someone's retirement plan. Now let's keep things moving. Here comes another caller question by way of Boston. It came in earlier on our Anytime Listener line. It's always open at 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve. Hey, Justin. This is Justin from Boston. Um, Love the show. Uh, I was giving you a call today on safety insurance, ticker symbol S-A-F-T. I was interested in the stock for a long-term hold. Earnings look solid. Pays a 5.3% dividend. Looks like a sustainable 
like 65% payout ratio. That doesn't look too bad. The chart uh, was up around 100 uh, a while back, about a year ago. Uh, bounced down to 65, went up a little bit. Uh, it's back down at 65 level and it's been kind of chopping sideways for about a month now. So, yeah, I'm just curious your thoughts, and I'll hang up and listen to your answer on the podcast. Love the show. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right, this is Safety Insurance Group, S-A-F-T. This is a private passenger automobile insurer in the state of Massachusetts. It offers commercial automobile homeowners, dwelling fire, umbrella, and business owner policy insurance. So a small one, only a billion dollar market cap. You're probably after that nice 5.3% yield. The issue here is that earnings have been struggling. Last couple of quarters, revenues down. A lot of that I'm sure has to do with COVID. Earnings, sorry, re- yeah, I think I said that, revenues down. Earnings have actually have been up 15% year over year from 2019 to 2020. That's a good thing. But you're right, technically it is extremely weak. It's still kind of hovering near this 52-week low around $67 a share, down 33% from its 52-week high back late last year. So it's in a downtrend. It's a relative strength rating is a 12, meaning 88% of stocks in the market uh, over the past year have performed better than this. Uh, And many in the insurance industry itself have performed better than this. So uh, that's my real issue here is just the relative performance is so weak technically. Now their business still remains pretty good. Uh, Let me look at their valuations here. Hmm. Looks like their EBITDA is negative. I don't like that. Um, Longer term, it's profitability tends to be in the high single digits, which is okay. Uh, You know, I just don't love it. I like the industry. I like the insurance industry. We own a few for uh, managed accounts. We actually even own a small regional player for out here in West, on the West Coast, uh, but they perform much better than uh, this company. So I would pass on it. I like that you're looking at the insurance industry, but try to find one that has been a better relative performer. And I know you're after that 5% yield, but you can find that in the insurance space still with a much better performer. Now, you don't know that in addition to the availability of our Invest Talk podcast, we live stream the program as well. It's true. You can listen live in our 4 o'clock Pacific Time hour. Remember, we this is a radio show. I know most people don't listen to it as a radio show, but we do air live 4 to 5 Pacific Time, which means we stream live as well, and then we put it out later as a podcast. But you can always listen live by hitting the listen live button at investtalk.com. Now, uh, let me get to preferred stocks. This is an area that a lot of people are interested in, and for a few reasons. Right As of September 30th, the SEC yield for the preferred stock funds overall are about 4.9%. That compares to dividend stock funds of only 2.1%, high-yield bond funds of 4.3%, and 1.2% for intermediate term core bond funds, which obviously have a lot of treasuries in it, so that's why the yields are so low. But preferred stock yields are generally actually lower than high-yield credit, but today they're actually higher. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of investors are interested in the space as a whole, especially with 
the 10-year treasury rate below 1%. So fixed income investors look at it and say, hey, inflation is going to be well over 1% probably in the, in the next 10 years. So I'm going to get negative yields. I need higher returns. I need higher income. And a lot of people look at preferred shares as a bond substitute. But if you look at history, you will see that's not a good bet. Now, just for everybody out there, preferred stocks are hybrid securities. It's kind of a blend of equity-like as well as bond-like characteristics. Now, like a bond, preferred shares produce regular income payments. And they have a fixed par value. right? Just like a bond is 100, preferred shares is at 25. Now, like unlike a bond, more like an equity, those payments are not guaranteed. And they rank lower on the capital structure than more traditional bonds, traditional debt. In a bankruptcy, bondholders take preference over preferred shareholders. So that means that they're, that's why it's riskier because you're not protected in bankruptcy, or at least not protected nearly as much. Now, preferred stocks generally don't have a fixed maturity, and that's one of the issues too, is they have very long duration risk. Issuers can redeem the shares five or 10 years after they're issued, but they don't have to. And unlike stocks, though, you don't get an increase in profits, right? If the business goes goes booming, you don't get a share of those profits, kind of like a bondholder. So you get the negatives of the ups, lack of upside, like a bondholder, and you get the negatives of lack of protection on the downside, like an equity holder. So it's this hybrid security that's not the greatest to really be in. Now, the best thing about preferred stock income is that under the qualified dividend income tax rules, most preferred dividends are taxed at that lower tax rate, kind of like you would get from a, a typical stock, right? Like your, your Procter & Gamble dividend. So on an after-tax basis, you have a little bit of yield advantage, advantage there. The problem is that credit risks is very high. Now, they can also miss payments without it being considered a default, unlike a bond, right? If you have a bond, if you're a bondholder, they need to pay you your interest rate. Otherwise, it's a default. Now, studies have shown that 6% of preferred stock issuers defer or cancel dividend payments over a 10-year period. Not only that, but they're typically concentrated in a select number of industries. Financial services, real estate, and utilities account for the vast majority of preferred stock issuance. So even if you buy a fund, you are concentrated in particular sectors. They also have similar volatility to equities. So in 2008, for example, the preferred, in, uh, the preferred index dropped about more than 25%, which is far more than the bond market and closer to what the equity market did. Even, in 2000, even earlier this year, they fell on average of 23%, whereas the equity markets fell about 30, low 30%. So over the past 15 years, preferred stocks have shown about 94% of the volatility of stocks overall, while generated lower returns than both investment grade and high yield bonds. So overall, in conclusion, 
they're just poor risk and risk versus reward vehicles over the long term. Let's go to John in Santa Cruz. He's looking at Newmont and Barrick. Yeah. Hi. How are you? Well, well. Good. So, yes, Newmont or Barrick. Uh, when I look at uh, like Yahoo Finance, it says Barrick is overvalued and Newmont is undervalued, but I don't know if that really makes any difference what they say. Yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't bank on what they say as uh, as gospel. Uh, you know, they're both we we own them for managed accounts. We have for some time. So, but I would look at the projected earnings for 2021. Newmont is looking at four dollars and sixty cents a share. That's the expected, which would put the current PE somewhere in the fourteen range, which is pretty low, right? And that's just for the whole space, the whole gold and silver mining space, I think there's still, even after the price appreciation over the past year plus, there's still a lot of underappreciation of the shares uh, and the potential earnings for these businesses. Now, Barrick, they're supposed to make $1.49 next year on a $27 stock price. You know, that's closer to an 18, 19 P. So if you're just going based on that, Newmont is probably more undervalued. I'll say that. Uh, Newmont, you're going to get a little better dividend, 1.6% dividend versus 1.2 for for Barrick. Uh, you know, Newmont has weaker revenue growth. Last quarter up 5%. Barrick was up 48%. So you're getting a little bit. You're paying up for that little level of uh, of growth as well. So you know, it depends on what you're looking for. I think relative value, Newmont's better. Barrick has a little bit better growth, right? So up 108% in earnings this year expected. So once again, I like them both. It's just a matter of what you're looking for, better growth or better relative value. What's your goal, John? Capital appreciation. (laughs) Capital appreciation. Well, you you know, these miners are, miners are fickle. They have various jurisdictions, and that's something I would look at as well, is what's the risk to their overall, oh, to their mines, right? You, Newmont, for example, has mines in U, the U.S., Australia, Canada. Those are obviously very stable, but also areas like Ghana, Peru, Suriname, Mexico, Argentina, Dominican Republic, right? So pretty diverse, but also in areas that can be a little bit more more sketchy. Let's say that. Um, Barrick, Canada, U.S., Peru, Chile, uh, nine other countries. So they're, they're also in some not the greatest uh, areas, right? Uh, so that's a risk as well. But overall, I, I can't, it's hard for me to say which one I like better. Because I like them both. We own them for, for both of our managed accounts. I would say, buy them both. There's nothing wrong with owning more than one. Thanks for the call, John. I'm Justin Klein. You listen to Invest Talk, and you are not alone. Our podcast download statistics show that for m- the month of October, we have already achieved one half million downloads, and the month is only less, but two thirds over. 
Now, Steve and I thank you for downloading a Best Talk and also telling your friends and family members about our free investing and financial podcast. And of course, you're welcome to call our KPP financial offices in Irvine, California at 800-557-5461. This is Invest We would Talk. love to help you. For now, our phone lines are open at 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Is it delivering the types of gains you want and need to achieve financial freedom? Well, turn up the volume because there are many questions that deserve unbiased answers. And Justin Klein is here now, ready to take your calls live. 888-99-CHART. Let's go to John in Palo Alto looking at Boston Scientific Corp. Do you own it or are you looking to buy it? Um, I'm looking to buy it, uh, Justin. Um, so I just wanted to know your thoughts on this company and when would be a good uh, entry point for it. Well, Boston Scientific, I, I like the company overall. Performance-wise, it's done Decent, but not spectacular, that's for sure. I mean, 2012, it had free cash flow of a billion dollars, and trailing 12 months, it's at a billion dollars. Even last year, 2019, it was only 1.3 billion, and a negative free cash flow in 2018. Uh, its profitability has vacillated between return equity of negative 40 to as high as 41 last year. So it's really all over the place when it comes to its performance. Um, you know, I, I once again, I kind of, I like it okay. I like the space okay, but the valuation, I don't. I don't like the valuation. If you're looking at it historically, price to say revenues, enterprise value to revenues, it's trading at about six. Historically, it ranges from a low of one and a half, 2007, and a high of nine. But you know, it's cheap around two to three, and it's at six. So it's not cheap enough for me because there's not a lot of growth. Even before COVID, the seven quarters before COVID, its average revenue growth was in the high single digits. Earnings growth in the low double digits, right? 10, 12%. So not a fast grower. And so if it's not a fast grower, I, I'm not going to pay high multiples for this particular stock. Uh, technically as well, it's looking relatively weak. It's it's rolling over uh, relatively weak compared to the overall market. It's uh, relative strength is 35, meaning over the last year, 65% of companies have done much better. So, you know, I I don't I, I like the company okay, but it needs to be cheap for me, and it's not cheap at all at these metrics. So I'm gonna pass and buy Boston Scientific. It needs to be. Honestly, it's trading at 37 now. This needs to be sub 25 for me to even think about owning it because there's just not huge growth in this company. Thanks for the call, John. I think we will squeeze one more caller question in here. This time it is from New Jersey. Hi, Justin and your team. This is Mark calling from New Jersey. Uh, I'm looking into REITs, learning about them, trying to find a good, safe, relatively worthy place to put between five and $9,000. 
to let it sit there over the next three to five years. I want to be hands off, but I want it to also have a decent return. So let me know if you can what would be a good REIT to use or whether I should look at other ETFs or dividend stocks. Thank you so much. Look forward to hearing your answer. Bye. Well, I can't give you a specific REIT to buy. It's against SEC rules for me to recommend something without you asking. If you can, if you ask me a specific one, I can tell you whether I like it or not. But I can't say, hey, buy this particular REIT. Now, what I can say is you should avoid certain areas of the REIT space. I don't love the mortgage REIT market. Now, there's some, depending on their credit quality, et cetera, that might be okay. But I don't love that space. The retail space as well, or the commercial uh, space. I think those areas are going to continue to struggle post COVID. Now, what areas do I like? Industrial, right? Warehousing REITs, that area. I like some healthcare REITs, uh, some data center REITs. Now, the yields on a lot of those better ones are going to be a little bit lower, right? You're not going to get the five, six, seven percent yields. You might only get three or four percent. But guess what? That's fine. It should be fine with you because that's more stability, more longer-term growth, right? So being looking in those spaces makes the most sense. And number one, avoid the private REITs. Don't get talked into buying some private REIT that has poor liquidity, that's going to give you a statement that it's worth X, and when you go to sell it, you're not going to get that much. That's usually how these private REITs work. And that includes those online REITs as well, uh, like the Fundrise, etc. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. I'll return tomorrow. Steve Peasley is on vacation. In the meantime, please remember to tell your friends and family members that they can choose from over 100 archived Invest Talk podcasts for free download on our website, investtalk.com, as well as iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also listen live, four to five p.m. Pacific time every weekday via our live stream on investtalk.com. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is President and Justin Klein Chief Executive Officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial.